The Defense Department has unveiled what it calls Replicator, a plan to introduce cheap, unmanned systems with points on them, lots and lots of them, to help it better compete with China. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks outlined the plan for the program at a National Defense Industrial Association conference. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr has the details and exactly what does the Pentagon hope to accomplish with Replicator? Swarms of little things that blow up? Yes, swarms of little things that blow up. That's right. What it is is a way to compete with China. And the premise is China is building so many ships, so many missiles, so many weapons, and they have so many people. So how do we compete with that? Well, the Pentagon's idea is that we compete with that with cutting-edge technology and lots of cheap, relatively disposable things. Here's Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks. This is about mastering the technology of tomorrow. To stay ahead, we're going to create a new state-of-the-art, just as America has before, leveraging attributable autonomous systems in all domains which are less expensive, put fewer people in the line of fire, and can be changed, updated, or improved with substantially shorter lead times. We'll counter the PLA's mass with mass of our own, but ours will be harder to plan for, harder to hit, harder to beat. I was thinking, why say that in public if you're going to do that? But China can probably find out anyway about four milliseconds after the United States knows about it, so I guess there's no harm in announcing it publicly. And she says attritable, which sounds like attrition, which means you can expend a lot of them doing their destructive little stuff. So what are they going to make? Did she outline what these things would actually be? Well, it's interesting you should ask that because she was a little cagey about that. She said she doesn't want to say exactly what they're going to make because China might find out. What she did say is that they've been talking to the COCOMs, the combatant commands, and asking them what specific systems they need. In fact, the Indo-PACOM commander, uh, Admiral Aquilino, was here talking, and he brought this up and said, yes, we absolutely need these attributable unmanned systems to combat China. So anyway, they're, they're going to make things. They're not going to tell us exactly what they are. But what she does offer is that it's a multiplier of manpower. You may remember the collaborative combatant aircraft, which is an Air Force idea where you have unmanned planes that fly with manned planes, and it multiplies the number of planes you have in the air. I think it's kind of the same idea. The important part, though, is that they're cheap and somewhat disposable. Here's Kathleen Hicks. Since we need to break through barriers and catalyze change with urgency, we've set a big goal for Replicator to field attributable autonomous systems at scale of multiple thousands in multiple domains within the next 18 to 24 months. And the replication won't just be happening from a production standpoint. We'll also aim to replicate and inculcate how we will achieve this goal so we can scale what's relevant in the future again and again and again. Yeah, logistics, production, that's all key to it, you know, and doctrine to deploy those things. I guess we can pretty well be sure that they will not be produced in China, though. Fair to say, Alex? (laughs) I don't think they'll be produced in China, Tom. All right. And if they have this goal of fielding all of this in less than two years, the question is, are they going to start from scratch with a custom design? Or did they say whether there's something commercial that might be adaptable? That's an interesting question, because really, custom design should take longer than two years. But they're saying, no, this isn't available commercially at all. We do have to custom design it. 
they're saying they're going to build thousands of them and then they're going to be cheap. They're going to be relatively disposable. So I think the point is they're going to, well, replicate them. They're going to design it and then they're going to build the same design over and over again. To be clear, America still benefits from platforms that are large, exquisite, expensive and few. But Replicator will galvanize progress in the too slow shift of U.S. military innovation to leverage platforms that are small, smart, cheap, and many. Yeah, that's a good point. They've got a new bomber coming out of Northrop Grumman. But let's face it, if that thing is capable of dropping a bomb within 20 years, that'll be you know pretty good. But in the meantime, they have to have something. And so what did she say about the organization around this initiative? How's that all going to work? Well, it looks like it's going to have pretty high-level guidance. The project is supposed to be directly supervised by the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, and by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if there is ever one confirmed again. And then additionally, Hicks has set up some boards of the Defense Department's Chief Technology Officers, and they'll all meet regularly and kind of collaborate to get this project up and running. Here's what Hicks had to say about it. At the beginning of the administration, I created our innovation steering group with Undersecretary Shu right here, um, uh, chaired for us. What we found is that there was a need in the system to pull that work up systematically to the deputy secretary level and allow uh, Undersecretary Shu to pull the CTOs. That DISG will be the driving engine for Replicator. We also created a body that will feed that, that Doug Beck, uh, director of DIU, who is a direct report now, uh, will lead. All right, so they have thought about this. I was thinking, you know, with respect to those lack of nominations, maybe they could test these new replicated systems on Senator Tuberville. Just kidding, just kidding. (laughs) Did she mention about the funding? Do they have a program? I mean, did this get through the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process to where they have money for it? Well, maybe some, but not too much. When I asked that question of a Defense Department spokesperson, he said, well, we have a a couple hundred million dollars that we're going to get through reprogramming. But it looks like what they're depending on is partnering with the uh, Defense Innovation Unit. Now, that the DI, the DIU has been, uh, the appropriators are saying they're going to give them a billion dollars next year. That, of course, hasn't happened yet, but presumably some of that funding would make its way into the replicator program. So it sounds like an other transaction authority purchase, at least initially here. At least initially, yes. All right. Well, exciting program. We'll have to see what they do in the future. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, 
and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a liberal wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice, you can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. 
You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, 
Is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.